So we're in a series looking at Jesus, and so far Dan, Dan has really led us well looking at kind of the bigger picture of that, and uh, the reconciled community was the first part of this, where the kind of fundamental aspect of Jesus' community is the breaking down of walls between us. When you think about all that's gone on in our culture and even in the church in the last year and a half or so, that's just a huge, huge thing to try to think about and embrace. The second thing Dan mentioned was the trusting community, that we trust that Jesus has given us gifts, right? All of us have been given gifts, and even corporately we've been given gifts through Jesus. and, And part of trusting Jesus is that we can't do everything, that we have limits, and so we need to lean into what he's given to us and trust him about that. What a great message that was. Today we're going to look at uh, Jesus' community being the found community. To do that, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, the familiar story of Zacchaeus. So if you'd like to stand, I'm going to read once again from the gospel of Luke chapter 19. Let's hear God's word to us today. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes... I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The word of the Lord. All right, you can have a seat again. It's a great little story, and it's it's packed. It's really a packed story. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story Unbroken. It's about uh, World War II. Well, it was about a man named Louis Zamperini. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, an amazing man. He, uh, he was a runner, first and foremost. He almost beat the fastest time in terms of running the uh, 100 yards, I think it was. Or the, maybe it was the mile, actually. It was the, almost the fastest mile in his day. And then World War II came, and he was drafted in, he became a pilot, so he had to postpone being in the Olympics and all kinds of things like that in order to serve his country and and go to war. And while he was serving as a pilot, they were on a reconnaissance mission trying to find a downed plane when their engines started to fail. And uh, nothing could recover it. They ended up going into the middle of the Pacific Ocean Uh, and three people survived the crash. So he and the three others had two rafts. They were able to climb into that. And for the next 47 days, they drifted in the Pacific Ocean, 
battling sharks that were coming at them. At one point, a Japanese plane came down and strafed them about eight times, uh, missed them miraculously. Uh, they endured hunger, thirst. I mean, can you imagine 47 days in a raft after crashing? And then they found land. They drifted up to it. They were able to get onto the land. And in a heartbreaking turn of events, the people that they met there were Japanese soldiers, only to take them into custody and eventually ship them off into a World War II prisoner of war camp. And at that camp, at several camps that he went through, it was horrific. If you read the story, you're just like, are you kidding? One thing after another is going wrong for this person, including one of the guards at one of the camps just completely harassing him, almost to the point of death and torture. Imagine being found by your enemy, right? Imagine being found by your enemy, where you're hoping for rescue, you're hoping to be delivered, and instead it's people that are not only going to take you, but take you and turn you into worse conditions than you thought you could ever endure. This was Louis' story. What's interesting, I think what's interesting about his story is that um, Sadly, sometimes the church is a little bit like that to people who are looking for something. Um, the Barna Group did a, a survey. They constantly are kind of doing surveys, trying to get the landscape of the church. And, and one of the surveys was about why people avoid church or don't go to church. And most of the foundings found that the, the largest percentage of unchurched people, they have negative views of the church. They think local churches are judgmental hypocritical, irrelevant, and disconnected from real issues in the community. They're known more for what they're against than for what they're for. That makes me sad, and I think that's true. I, in the campus work that we do, I think the biggest barrier, barrier we have to, to helping people to engage with Jesus isn't actually Jesus, but it's the, the other things that are piled up that are in people's minds and hearts about what this Jesus or what the church is like that feels like you have to climb over those to even begin to have a conversation. This series, I hope, is going to inspire us to see what the church, the community of Jesus, is really formed to be, right? And when Jesus has his way, this is what we turn into, right? It's not the enemy of people that are looking for something, but rather the friend. And in today's story, we see that really spelled out in a powerful way with Zacchaeus. Jesus' community is a found community. So Zacchaeus here in uh, verse 2 is introduced as a chief tax collector living in the city of Jericho and is very rich. These three descriptors, for anybody in Luke's day reading this, especially somebody who is Jewish, uh, they're, they're, they would be very um, t uh, charged kind of description of this person. In other words, um, today we might read uh, like anything about Trump, for instance, the words, right? They'd be charged words describing somebody because we know the whole kind of backdrop and, and the whole story, right? Um, so Jericho was a border town, right? People coming into Israel from other parts would often pass into Jericho to get there. As a result, there was a lot of uh, businesses that could happen there. 
People became wealthy. It was known, um, if you think of like Newport, Rhode Island, or Cape Elizabeth, or places like that, that would be the Jericho in Israel, right? It was known for more expansive houses and lawns, trees, like sycamore fig trees, for instance, and the palm trees were very popular there. If you were to visit there, you'd be like, oh, this is a beautiful place. Look at how, look at how the wealth has kind of done good to the community. So Jericho, you hear that and you think, oh, wealthy town, right? Thinking Cape Elizabeth. You're thinking places where there's more money invested in the town. Tax collectors, right? These were folks that were notoriously anti-Jewish in a sense, right? They betrayed their own people to ally with the Romans who were oppressing and occupying Israel at the time. And they were using that power to, to be able to exploit their neighbors by taking more taxes from them than what than they owed in order to fill their own pockets with their salaries, which were often well above the, the income of anybody around them. And now Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in this system. He was the one who was actually holding the system together in Jericho for exploiting the people. He may not have ever cheated anybody individually, but he certainly had hired hands that did it all the time. And he took a portion of their take for himself. And so he may never have had to, quote, break a law, but clearly he was benefiting from a system and took a lot from that system. So in short, the description in verse, is, in verse 2 is saying about Zacchaeus, meet the traitor, right? Meet the traitor. He was a wealthy person at that. This is in a time when the Jewish people were supposed to be enjoying the fruit of their own promised land, given to them way back from the promise of Abraham. They were supposed to be benefiting from that. Instead, the Romans were occupying that, and they were still feeling that sense of being in exile. They hadn't yet arrived to the full vision of what God had spelled out for them. Many people believe, like the Pharisees, for instance, their whole kind of worldview is that if we are holy enough, if we hold ourselves pure enough before God, then he will get rid of the Romans and re, uh, reestablish the land for us. And even though the Pharisees took that to an extreme, most people, most faithful Jews would have some kind of story like that running in their mind. If we're faithful, God will be faithful back to us and we'll get our land back. And so someone like Zacchaeus, who has not only, not only exploits the people, but he's in line with the oppressors, would be seen as somebody who's actually working against that flow, right? Someone like that in the community would be preventing, in a sense, God from blessing you. So it's like you're doubly cursed with somebody like that in your town. Not only do they take your money, they're preventing the possibility of flourishing in the future. I think the best word to describe kind of how people felt about Zacchaeus would be disgust. Jesus makes his way through Jericho. In the timeline of Jesus' life at this point, this is at the very end of his ministry. After he goes through Jericho, he'll climb up over the mountain, look down over Jerusalem, and he'll do the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the very end of his public kind of ministry outside of Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And Luke makes an interesting story here. He puts it right here at that moment. This is like the last guy that Jesus will really interact with before going in to meet his death. So he likely had a following. 
And Zacchaeus gets word. In verse 3, he wants to see. Literally in verse 3 where it says that he wanted to get a look at Jesus. He, he wanted to see who Jesus was. I like that. He's curious, but he's at, he's at a distance still, right? And he's short. We don't know his motives. He might have just simply been curious. In uh, Luke 7, Jesus clearly is getting a reputation for being a, quote, friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 15, he's hanging out with them, and that's where the, the beautiful story of the prodigal son comes. And so maybe Zacchaeus had heard these things, and he's like, I want to I see. Is he? Would he be a friend of me? Maybe he had a guilt that he was carrying around. Maybe he didn't like what he was doing. We don't know. But he does have a motivation inside somehow. He wants to get a glimpse and see who Jesus is. But he was short. You get the picture in the story that the townspeople are kind of purposefully, you know, like standing like this on the side of the road, right? They, they don't want this guy. If he was behind them trying to find a way to get through, I'm guessing they would have shut the door on him. Right? They don't want him to get the front row seat like they have. This is one instance where they have a little bit of power over him when he's had all the power previously. So it's interesting. Zacchaeus, with all his wealth, his stature, all these things that he has from Rome, he's too short to see Jesus. He can't get there on his own. He needs help. And nobody in the town is going to help him, so he turns to a tree. He wanted to see who Jesus was, and he was about to find out. He had no idea what was coming next. Imagine you being Zacchaeus. You're just being shut out by the people. You know your position there. You have all the wealth, but you don't fit in. You climb a tree. You see Jesus come down the road, and then he looks at you. And not only does he look at you, he uses your name. How does he know your name? Zacchaeus! Imagine that moment. When Jesus says that name, imagine that moment if you're Zacchaeus. If you're somebody standing by the road. It's like, how does he? Either he's a prophet or he knows Zacchaeus has a reputation. This is Jericho, after all. You know, people in towns like that, their names will get more popular. So who knows? We don't know. But either way, Jesus uses his name. I love that. Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. I must be a guest in your home today? Like, that's the last person that Jesus, a holy rabbi, should be found in. The last place. And even though um, he was a friend of sinners, and like still, the idea of him going into the home of somebody like this, again, it would have created disgust in people. It's like kind of like the story of Peter and Acts, where the sheet is lowered with all the foods that they're not allowed to eat, and Peter's like, no way, and God's like, eat it. Like the initial, like probably he felt like throwing up. In the same way. These people, seeing Jesus go into a house of someone like Zacchaeus, it probably viscerally had an effect on their gut. But he calls him by name, and literally he says, Zacchaeus, I want to abide with you. 
It's the same word that John uses when Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Anybody that remains in me will produce fruit. Like, he's talking about inclusive, intimate language here. He's not saying, I'd like to come to your house. He's saying, I, I actually want to join with you. And table fellowship, eating at somebody else's table in that day, meant that you wholeheartedly were embracing that person as being part of your life. And that's the word that Jesus uses for Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus gleefully says yes. Right? That's the idea here. Luke says he's like he's overtaken with a sense of joy. A found community is made up of people who, like Zacchaeus, don't make the cut. What about you? Do you ever feel disqualified? Yeah, when you think of church, right, the idea of church, do you ever feel like you're just kind of one step on the outside? Think of, like, even how you feel coming into a building like this on a day, right? Like, if you've had an argument leaving the door, if you're kind of under the weather, if it's a rainy day, you just feel like taking a nap. I don't know if I want to invest. I'll just go sit, get through it, and go home, right? Like, there, there's a way that the found community is actually made up of exactly those kind of people. It's not like the perfect, passionate people. It's not the people that have it all together. It's not the ones that know the scriptures through and through. The flash flood warning has been issued for your location. Your phone just talked to me. Okay. <laughs> that was weird. So. Um, found community means that we were lost, right? So the, the Jesus community, the found community, is made up of people that don't fit in. And that's okay. It's also made up of people who might fit in, and that's okay. It doesn't matter, in other words. The point is, it's about people whom Jesus has called us by name. Amen. And he wants to do that with everybody. We see that at the end of this story. In the middle of our falling short, he knows our name, and he wants to abide with us on our turf. Do you believe this? Do you believe that today, now, no matter how you're doing, no matter what you're bringing in here, Jesus knows you and wants to be with you? A, a very prominent spiritual director that um, I've read, his line is this, I think many people would believe God loves them, but the problem we have is believing God likes us. I think Jesus actually liked Zacchaeus. He wasn't dutifully saying, I gotta do this. I think he actually wanted to be in his house. And he wants to be in ours. The result is gratitude, I think. One of the marks of the found community is that we're grateful. Amen. Amazing. Jesus wants to know us and be with us. We'll see this reaction in Zacchaeus for sure. But first, we have to go through the reaction of the people. In verse 7 it says, But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Jesus did what? Right, That would be the common reaction on the street the, that day, right? It sent ripples of astonish, astonishment through the onlookers. The word here, displeased, literally is uh, the same word as the Israelites in the desert or um, the same thing in Luke 15 when Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors. It's muttering, grumbling. I like the word muttering, right? Why do they mutter? 
And what do they say? We've all we've all been mutterers. We know what they're saying. Like we've been in their shoes, right? Um, just take take one minute or like ten seconds even, and think about: Is there a person or a group of people in your life that you mutter about? I won't ask you who, Wendy. I promise. Yeah, they're astonished that Jesus is doing this. Like going to abide with Zacchaeus. And so the thing that comes out is a a grumbling and a muttering. What's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't care. And I love that. He takes initiative doing this, and you've got to know, he knew this secondary reaction was going to come. And yet he doesn't care. He still goes towards Zacchaeus and invites him into it invites himself into his house. I wonder about the disciples that were with Jesus on the road, what their reaction might have been like, right? They've been with him now up to three years. I'm guessing they're still initially still a bit astonished and kind of shocked, just like the rest of the crowd. But I wonder if they don't actually get to that muttering stage because they've kind of been hit so many times after they've done that. I wonder if now... After a little bit of time, they would have remembered Jesus stopping at a well in the middle of the day in somewhat of a scandalous interaction with a Samaritan woman, not only because of the ethnic tension, but because of the gender and even sexual overtones of that encounter. I wonder if they would have remembered when Jesus decided to sail back across the lake just after they had gone the other way to go to a man in the tombs in Gethsemane that was completely outcast and thrown out of the town and he brought him back into his right mind and gave him a mission to go back and reach all the people that had once disowned him. I wonder if they'd remember Jesus affirming a sinful woman who laid down at his feet, crying on his, his feet and wiped it with her hair taken down, which was an astonishing thing to do in a Pharisee's house. And, in, and when the Pharisee was judging the woman, instead of helping to resolve that situation with the Pharisee, he upheld the women, lifted her up to a higher place than the Pharisee and judged the Pharisee and made him go in shame over what he was doing. I wonder if they remembered Jesus hugging a leper. I wonder if they remembered Jesus inviting Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. What dominates Jesus' action here is not whether people will mutter or not, it's compassion. And that's another mark of a found community. A found community is filled with compassion for those that otherwise were tempted or tend to mutter about. Think think of all the ways in our culture muttering has just been like multiplied over the differences of the way we've dealt with the pandemic, dealt with the racial strife in our country, dealt with some of the suffering that we've undergone. Muttering. All, I mean, the news is almost muttering now. We're called to be people of compassion. And part of being compassionate means we get to know other people's story. We get to know what's underneath the presenting issue that often creates the muttering. There's no muttering allowed in that sense in the found community, but it's less of a rule and more like what the disciples experience. The more we experience his grace, the more we see how Jesus treats people, the less we'll be tending to mutter, and the more we'll have a, a, a reaction of compassion. 
What's interesting is Zacchaeus could have said no to Jesus' invitation. Right? I must come to your house. Um, <laughs> he has to make a decision. And his initial decision is gratitude and joy. That's awesome. I think that's the way it should be. Sometimes we have, when Jesus invades our life, we have barriers put up that make it hard to be vulnerable. But Zacchaeus became vulnerable pretty quickly. And he invited him in. And the result was salvation. In verse 8 and 9, it says this. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, verse 9, salvation has come to this home today. We'll get more into that in a second. Zacchaeus' salvation here, it's interesting, right? It wasn't based on his theology. It wasn't based on his past. His understanding of Jesus' movement. His understanding of Torah or the scriptures. It wasn't really based on that. It was based on his being found by Jesus. And that fruit came out of that naturally. It's like it was just brought out of him in a way that Jesus affirmed this is a true child of Abraham. What Jesus saw beyond his actions, I think, was the heart. And what's interesting is what happens here, like what's actually behind Zacchaeus' response. There were Old Testament laws that said if you... If somebody is deliberately cheated or stolen from, then the, the, the just, lawful response to that for restitution would be to give four times back. But there was no law. Like, they did not see the tax collectors doing that. Like, it, it didn't fit under that same exact category, right? Because in the Old Testament, it's about stealing an ox or stealing a, you know, a physical piece of property. Here, the tax collectors were using a system to exploit people. And they could escape the letter of the law in doing that. And so what Zacchaeus does is he actually borrows from the law, brings it into his situation and says, this is the just response for what I've done. And it's motivated by him having Jesus in his house. And Jesus sees that and is like, yes, finally, someone who understands the law. And this is what salvation is. It's when the law comes into your heart. And it actually produces something fruitful. The intent it was put. It's not about following the law and checking it all off. It's about what it does for the community around you. That's the whole point of it. And Jesus sees that and declares salvation has come here. Zacchaeus is showing what it's like to be found by Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison to the worth of being with Jesus. Suddenly his riches don't matter as much. Suddenly his past doesn't matter as much. Suddenly his future. Who knows what this little uh, response does for his position and does with his relationship to Rome. My guess is it's going to stir a pot up pretty, pretty bad for Zacchaeus. But he doesn't care. What matters to him is he has Jesus in his house. And that, that just, everything else pales in comparison to that. I think that's a great picture of the found community, right? We should be the kind of people where transformation from letting Jesus in just starts to take root and naturally comes out. And part of what that means is that whatever 
Previously, for Zacchaeus, for instance, had given him security or value or power. He emptied himself of those things. Just like Jesus emptied himself of the power of being divine in order to become human and even take on the clothes of a slave to serve his enemies. In the same way, Zacchaeus is demonstrating what a found community looks like when we're transformed. We don't defend ourselves anymore. We don't have to. We don't try to hold on to our power and our riches or a system that benefits that. We can let go of that. Imagine that kind of attitude in the current discussion today over power and race and the country and patriotism and all these other things. A found community can live completely outside of those narratives in a way that impacts the culture and makes a difference. And at heart, we're invitational in that way. right? Zacchaeus clearly would have had an impact on that town, not just through people getting their money back four times over, but through realizing, look at this changed person. This is the last encounter, again, before Jesus enters Jerusalem. What's interesting is it mirrors the very first story of God finding us. Back in Genesis, right? Let's go back. Adam and Eve. They chose a way that seemed best to themselves. And they actually exploited God's creation by going against his will and using something to benefit themselves. They turned from God and they became lost, full of shame and fear, separated from God, and now exposed to the possibility of death. When they heard God in the garden, they lowered their stature and hid behind bushes. And yet God sought them out in the garden and they and he used Adam's name. Adam, where are you? And when they came out, he saved them. He, he, he gave them his grace and mercy and offered them coverings to cover over their shame. Here, Zacchaeus has chosen a life of treason, believing it's best for his preservation. Yet it's left him lost to his own people and to God. When he hears Jesus is coming, he's described as a man of small stature who's now hidden behind the crowd. The difference is here he wants to see Jesus, so he actually climbs a tree to get in view. And what he finds instead is that it's not just he's looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for him. And he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. I must come to your house. Where do you live? Where are you? And when Zacchaeus comes out and meets Jesus, what Jesus announces is this. Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus explains why he does this. And I wonder if he has in mind that very first story of Adam. And the last thing he does before going to the cross is reenacts that same story with Zacchaeus as an illustration to Israel of what God wants to do, not just for the chosen people, but ultimately for the whole world, for us. This might be one of those moments where I imagine Jesus is seeing so much more than the crowd and loving it and being even more determined to go through the mission that he knows is going to take his life. 
Irenaeus, who is an early church father, said it this way, What we lost in Adam, we regain in Jesus. Amen. And I think Zacchaeus is like one of those moments where we see that happening. To finish Louis Zamperini's story, after he was found by the Japanese and underwent just two more years of grueling, grueling existence, there were many times in that that uh, period of time where he just wanted to die, but he kept he just kept going. And in the middle of that, um, one August day, a plane flew over, and for the first time he saw the American insignia on the plane, and they dropped supplies down into the camp, food and medicine and things like that. And he was saved. He was found. One would look at this and think that that was the crowning story of his life, but it wasn't. In his own words, being found and saved by American soldiers at the end of World War II was insignificant compared to how he was found after the war. After he got home, he sunk into a depression, alcoholism, and near ruin of his life. He was lost again. And through, actually I think it was through Billy Graham, uh, Jesus found him. He heard one of the, the, the um the times that Billy Graham was speaking, and it just hit his heart, and Jesus found him. And it changed his life like nothing else. From that day on, it took a while, but the rest of his life bore fruit of the three things that we've been talking about today. He became a grateful person, not as driven in the way that he had been before. He became a compassionate person, reached out to other people in the same kind of circumstances that he was in. And he became the kind of person that was so transformed it invited others into the story and change their lives as well. Amen. He was truly found, and it bore tremendous fruit in his life. And my hope for us, even as a church, is that we can be that same kind of found community. Grateful, compassionate, and transformed to invite others. So let's pray. Lord, may that be so for us. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you might work that into us. That we wouldn't try hard, but rather we'd be transformed by having you in our house, changing our lives from the inside out. Thank you, in Jesus' name.